0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Large financial institutions have failed with much higher frequency than is generally perceived, says Andrew Kuritsky, a partner at Oliver Wyman and head of the firm's public policy practice in North America. In this interview with Knowledge at Wharton, Kuritsky's suggests new rules of the game that would greatly improve the financial system's ability to absorb the inevitable shocks of big failures. Kuritsky's was the keynote speaker at the recent 12th Annual Financial Risk Roundtable, organized by the Wharton Financial Institution Center and Oliver Wyman Institute.
1: Thanks for joining us, Andy. Hey, Steve. Thank you. You've been quoted as saying that large financial institutions have failed at a much higher frequency than generally perceived, which is quite something <laughs> uh, coming out of the business world. Can you put that in perspective? That's, that's a pretty strong statement.
0: Yeah, sure. What I've looked at is the empirical record of large financial institutions, which I define as global top 100 financial firms, uh, what their actual failure rate was over the last 20 years. And there's a, a notion that we had certainly before the crisis that you know, large financial firms, uh, you know, the, uh, the Lehman Brothers, the Bear Stearnses, the uh, AIGs, uh, were actually very safe firms, that they had very high credit ratings, uh, you know, typically a, a single A uh, or better, uh, and that uh, these firms should fail at a, at a very, very uh, low rate. Um, but when you actually look at the empirical record, uh, it turns out if you go back over 20 years, uh, there were 26 failures of firms that would have been in the list of global top 100 financial firms. What were
1: some of the big ones? I think I can remember Continental,
0: Illinois was probably well, Continental one. Continental, Illinois actually oh, – Was that before that time? That was before that time, okay. yeah. So the big ones, the 26, and uh, uh, analysis that I do shows that over the 20-year period, then the the uh, default rate, the failure rate for these uh, – for the, for the global top 100 w- uh, works out to be 1.3 percent, which is – at least an order of magnitude higher than the default rate implied by credit ratings of the global top 100. That the, uh, the median credit rating of top 100 firms in 2007 was uh, single A+. Plus. Uh, that's consistent with a default rate of about four basis points, so less than five basis points. And the uh, historical record seems to show that these firms actually failed by my definition – uh, at a rate of 1.3%. So, you know, t- more than 20 times the implied failure rate of uh, of the credit ratings. So are,
1: are we talking world- we're talking worldwide? This is worldwide. So, how many of those
0: top 100 would have been in the US for example? Okay, so in the US, uh, there are eight firms that failed in 2008. Uh, and then that's a large part of the sample. And so the eight firms that, that failed by my definition in 2008 uh, were Bear Stearns, Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, Lehman Brothers, WaMu, Wachovia, AIG, and Merrill Lynch. Uh, and my definition of failure is a firm that went, went into insolvency, was placed in receivership, or was forced into a government government-assisted merger. So different ones of those eight fell into different categories. Fannie, Freddie, AIG were placed in rece- receivership. Lehman actually went insolvent. Uh, the others were really forced into government-assisted mergers. So, so what are the implications of your analysis that the failure rate is higher than most yeah, of Yeah, So thought? I think that uh, the fact that the failure rate is so much higher than implied by Credit ratings and credit ratings, which are used by risk managers internally in most risk modeling, uh, says to me uh, that first there's a general misperception of uh, what the true risk is of large financial institutions. And there's other evidence out there that uh, we could have looked to 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 sort of correct this misperception. Uh, There's evidence of uh, credit default swap pricing, which is much – which shows uh, default rates that are much, much higher than uh, credit ratings. Um, there's simply uh, the sustainability of very high returns uh, for some financial firms. You have to ask yourself, with the firms that are earning 20-plus percent returns on equity for uh, prolonged periods, is that, po- is, is, is that consistent with, um, uh, with the, 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 a firm having – uh, you know, a, a very, very low default rate, a default rate of uh, equivalent to like a double-A or single-A rated institution. You know, in general, we think that there's a trade-off between risk and return. And can you be a very high return firm and also a very low risk firm? Uh, but can, you, su- can you be? Well, I think on, on, <laughs> at some point uh, you kind of run out of runway to do that. And it becomes increasingly difficult to sustain, you know, very high uh, uh, returns on equity, especially in a business model that depends so heavily on leverage. It's easy to leverage up returns and show high returns on equity. But I think you sustain that at the, uh, at the cost of solvency protection. or In other, in other words, you sustain that by uh, running increased risk, especially to your, your, to your debt holders. And that's sort of what I think happened in 2008. So uh, that's, those are some of the uh, takeaways from um, the, uh, the mismatch between the empirical – the full, uh, the, the empirical failure rate and, and and credit ratings, but I think the more significant implication is the one I draw for, uh, for public policy, and I think the public policy implication is that um, this isn't the first banking crisis we've lived through. In fact, uh, in, over the last uh, 20 years, we've gone through several in uh, different parts of the world, uh, and I think... Um, uh, the, the the reality of, of, uh, of our banking or financial system is that it's going to be very difficult to reduce the failure rate of large financial firms systematically for a prolonged period of time. We've gone through too many banking crises in the post-war period to think that this time around we're going to get it right and we're going to put in place fixes – that are going to basically legislate large bank failure or large financial firm failure out of existence. Not a comforting
1: thought. So what do we do about that? Well, I'm I'm
0: sort of fatalistic. I mean, I'm sure we'll get it right coming out of the crisis for the short term. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure we'll uh, put in place fixes so that Uh, Next time around, it's not going to be subprime. Uh, It will be something else. It won't be structured credit. You know, it'll be a new set of risks that emerge that are probably unknown now and probably unpredictable ex-ante. We'll know about it after the fact, and then we'll think, gee, this is blindingly obvious. How did we miss it? But we're not going to know about it um, beforehand. That's sort of the nature of a banking crisis, uh, I think. Uh, and oh, so, so how often? When should we plan on the next one? Are well, they? I not If there, I knew the answer
1: to that, <laughs> I mean, is it every twenty years? I mean,
0: <laughs> well, when it seems we to happen nervous. a lot more, a lot more frequently than every twenty years within the mm-hmm. within the U.S. It's been about a twenty-year periodicity because mm-hmm. uh, the last major banking crisis was in the late '80s, early '90s. Uh, but then, after the U.S. experience, you had, you know, Scandinavia in The early uh, '90s, you had uh, other parts of continental Europe that had big banks fail mm-hmm. in the early '90 period. Then you had Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the later '90s, you had the Asian banking crisis, the Russian crisis. Uh, you know, you uh, had um, uh, the, you know the Tequila crisis. There, there are lots of other crises there, which uh, resulted in domestic uh, banking failures. Even if, in some cases, they didn't hit the global top 100 list. So, I think the the crises the crises recur a lot more frequently than even once in every 20 years. Um, but I think that uh, the policy takeaway is, if you are fatalistic as I am, that we're going to have uh, bank failures in the future for some you know, new and unknown uh, causes, then I think the premium should be on trying to make the financial system more survivable or better able to survive the failure of banks, and I think that's what, where policy needs to be focused on trying to make the system more resilient. And I think the big failing of policy in the crisis was that it didn't constrain systemic risk. This is uh, the first crisis where we've really had the the huge systemic knock-ons, which have then required the degree of government intervention that we've had. And so in, in future, I think we need to take a series of steps to constrain systemic risk and improve the system's survivability, given that banks are gonna get into trouble.
1: Did that happen uh, the way it did this time because the institutions got so large? A and how do we, how do we inoculate the system?
0: <laughs> well, I think size is a part of it, um, and it's an, it's an interesting question that I can't fully explain as to why did the institutions become so big, uh, big both in terms of absolute scale and then in, in scope of activity. Uh, activity. I mean, certainly deregulation uh, played a, a part, it's, but it's unclear that they're tremendous that there are significant economies of scale that would have driven firms to be as large as, as they've become. But, but setting that aside, um, I think that the, the fixes uh, really should focus first on, on what really failed systemically in the crisis. And to me, the first thing that failed was we had no resolution regime for non-bank financial institutions that got into trouble. So Bear Stearns, Lehman, AIG. no regulatory or resolution <laughs> regime. In some cases, no regulatory authority either. That's right. Uh, okay. But the, you know, to me, the uh, the trifecta of Lehman, Bear Stearns, and AIG, uh, we had no adequate mechanism for taking these firms and placing them in receivership, and allowing them to, uh, uh, allowing some more orderly unwind of them without, in the case of Bear and AIG, the Fed stepping in. And effectively throwing them a lifeline. I mean, Bear's case to support the merger with JP, and the AIG's case just effectively taking over the firm um, through cons- you know a conservatorship type process. It's, is
1: this semantics when we talk about receivership versus temporary nationalization? Is there, is there you know the, these oh, become politically th- radioactive terms? I'm just wondering if there's a reason. Yeah, I why don't they- think
0: receivership. Receivership to me is not synonymous with temporary nationalization. Uh, what, rec- what receivership would do is you would uh, take over the firm by um, uh, wiping out uh, the uh, uh, the shareholders uh, and, and installing new um, new management to oversee the firm as the receiver is trying to uh, either wind down the firm's um, you know assets and um, uh, work out the firm's assets and uh, maximize the recovery value, or sell off the firm in whole or in pieces, and then use the proceeds to pay off liability holders. Nationalization um, implies, to me, uh, the government. Owning the firm as a going enterprise, and that's not the point of receivership. Receivership is what the FDIC does. Sure. So IndyMac was placed under receivership. Right. Um, So that was an unfortunate
1: term, probably, temporary uh,
0: nationalization, when they probably really meant receivership. Maybe they did. Uh, Maybe that's a better way of looking at it. Um, But – uh, receivership also has this connotation. that You only do that for firms that have really failed. And, mm-hmm. I know, and I think when people were talking about should we put should we temporarily nationalize City or Bank of America, right, right. nobody wanted to uh, put the label out there right. because they didn't want to send the message that these you know the two largest banks in the U.S. had had failed. Right, and that. it's just
1: too complicated to talk about the difference between Chapter Eleven and Chapter Seven. And, and right, all sounds like that.
0: you know more about that than well, I do.
1: Well, <laughs> just you know, in other words, semantics matter. <laughs> right, right.
0: Uh, so in any event, I think uh, a resolution regime for non-bank financial institutions is uh, got to be top of the list. And uh, we have to find a way of working out these firms and ultimately imposing costs on uh, the uh, – not only the shareholders who were wiped out if, uh, in Lehman uh, and in largely in Bayer and, and AIG's case, but really also on the debt holders who are an important source of potential discipline on the firm. Uh, and the the notion that a all of AIG's creditors are going to be made whole at 100 cents in the dollar removes a tremendous uh, uh, incentive for for market discipline.
1: So you're saying they should get what's called a haircut? Yeah, that's right. Now that's not a typical attitude in in the business world in general. So I'm in, I'm interested in how how you came to this view and uh, how widely do you think it is felt outside of the you know.
0: The financial world that, that has its own interests at heart. That if you're the uh, the creditor of a firm that goes bust, that you should not be paid out 100 cents the dollar. I think it's a pretty, mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of, of, of widespread experience there. I mean, there's a pain that's been shared across many other industries. And I, and I don't think it's, uh, I think for the business world at large, this is not a new concept. I think what's new is the notion that uh, every creditor of a firm that's deemed to be too big or too interconnected or too complicated to fail gets uh, full recovery. Yeah, and I think I think putting aside the merits of
1: w- w- what's fair or not or what's w- you know what makes the most business sense. I mean, one thing that's worrisome is that you, you, you create a moral hazard for the future. Oh, absolutely. You know, you're, you're kind of setting us up for another fall, which could that, be worse if you, if you don't handle this right.
0: That's exactly right. That's why I think the starting point has to be to find a way to let firms fail. Failure is a good thing if the costs of uh, excess, excessive risk-taking or lax governance or even bad luck are internalized among a firm's uh, shareholders and debt holders. That's actually what we want failure to do. Um, that's how the market is supposed to operate. So I think resolution regime is the first place that we have to start. Then the two other things I think we need to do um, uh, to improve the survivability of the financial system, given the inevitability of bank failures, are reducing firm interconnectedness. And in, in many ways, systemic risk is directly proportional to the degree of counterparty risk in the system. So I think we need to find mechanisms to reduce the absolute amount of counterparty risk, firm interconnectedness, and then finally what, – what, what people sometimes call contagion, is that that's right? right? That's okay. right. That's um, right. And then finally, I think we also need to uh, introduce counter-cyclical capital measures so that we raise capital levels during boom years, lower them during the bust years, uh, which would reduce the connection between bank losses and the real economy. Well, that's interesting. Can I, I want to read you a quote and, and get okay. your reaction to it.
1: This is from – Uh, Philip Hildebrand of the Swiss National Bank. Mm -hmm. And he recently said that looking at risk-based capital measures, the two large Swiss Swiss banks were among the best capitalized large international banks in the world. Looking at simple leverage, however, these institutions were among the
0: worst capitalized banks. Right. So can you comment on that? Yeah, that's um, uh, one of the uh, perverse uh, – Consequences of Basel uh, Basel capital regulation is that uh, Basel uh, translates um, the asset base of a firm into these into risk weighted assets based on a series of uh, complex calculations that are run off of firms internal risk models. Oh, you mean kind of like
1: they combined all of these mortgage loans and. Somewhere, somehow, under grade A, but when
0: it came out, the end of the pipeline, everything was rated AAA. In a sense, that's that's sort of what happened. I mean, um, uh, UBS, for example, invested in lots of um, uh, CDOs that were AAA rated that got very low risk weights under this Basel scheme. So they, uh, when they compute regulatory capital. Uh, they show capital divided by risk-weighted assets. Risk-weighted assets were low, capital ratio was high, and that's the basis on which the Swiss banks had some of the highest capital ratios in the world. But when you looked at the total size of the balance sheet, um, they had a tremendous amount of leverage because you're not risk-weighting these different asset buckets now, you're just adding them up in nominal terms. And in nominal terms, the leverage was very, very high. And I think what we learned in this crisis is that absolute leverage matters, not just risk-weighted assets. If I'm not
1: mistaken, absolute leverage mattered to the point that uh, the, the estimated losses at one of those big Swiss banks was greater than the GDP of the country. <laughs> um, that's I'm, that's real leverage. <laughs> I mean, that is the real leverage. I mean, how does the country bail you out? You're essentially bigger than they are. Right. Well, it's too big to bail. Instead. Too big to bail. <laughs> instead There's of too new, big to fail. We have a new. We have a new. Uh, right. Right. So other solutions because um, I, I I think you're, you're you're coming up with some really interesting ones
0: well I think those are the three main ones that I see for dealing with um, uh, systemic risk making the system more survivable uh, I think a part of trying to reduce counterparty risk and um, uh, con- uh, you know sort of contagion effects uh, is also to try to come up with measures of how how um, Interconnected is a firm, or how systemic is a firm? Um, And there are uh, new efforts underway to devise um, metrics that would do that, that would, in effect, measure a firm's contribution to systemic, to, to overall system wide risk. And and, if, and and you're referring to worldwide worldwide. Well, this would probably be done on a on a national basis, so. right? But then there's that contagion that crosses borders, and you so. can you can take it up a level. That's certainly mm-hmm. true. But if you just stick with a national problem now, so we're talking about say the US, U.S. systemic risk. I think if you had a a measure or even you know proxies for that that were uh, less than perfect, one of the things that should be considered is. Uh, imposing a systemic risk charge, that we know that systemically important firms have cost the taxpayer now, you know, hundreds of billions, you know, total exposure at risk is in the trillions of dollars. I mean, I'm sure the losses won't ever get there to the government, but it's certainly very sizable. And um, I'm troubled by the fact that that very large systemically important firms Don't pay any insurance premium, in effect, for the government, uh, the uh, implicit government guarantee, the bailout uh, that happens when they run into trouble. So, uh,
1: when someone puts money in a a regular bank and you're covered by the FDC up to, I think it's $100,000, right? Aren't the banks paying a premium on that?
0: You're saying the non banks don't. Is that right? The banks are, uh, you're right that. The non bank banks. (laughs) (laughs) You're right that uh, banks do pay. Deposit insurance premiums to the FDIC on their insured deposit base. Uh, but we've now moved to a world where it's not just insured deposits that are guaranteed by the government. It's, in effect, almost the entire liability structure. I mean, uh, the Treasury announced that the 19 largest U.S. bank holding companies are each now too uh, too big to fail. And um, – that means that it's not just their insured deposits that are protected. It's the, you know, the whole liabilities of those 19 banks. Including the creditors that aren't getting the haircuts. Of That's that. right, including the creditors who aren't getting the haircuts and including uh, bank holding companies of convenience, as I call them, such as American Express and GMAC and um, uh, uh, MetLife, which you know, converted to bank holding company status. In the case of G- uh, GMAC and American Express, uh, once the TARP was announced, Um, but these really aren't institutions we think of as as being banks. They don't really have deposit bases. And we're now saying, at least for for the uh, the duration of the crisis, that uh, we're going to guarantee all of their liabilities. And again, it gets back, no haircut for the creditors. So that's a huge step uh, beyond just deposit insurance, and no one's paying a premium on that. Well,
1: thank you very much for speaking with us. We're out of time, but um, love to have you back sometime. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, Andy.
0: Bye-bye.